There are occasions when we come together to worship our God and the one who is presented with the opportunity to speak, to preach, to proclaim the truth, looks at all the things that have been done prior to the sermon and thinks we've already accomplished a great deal. What more can I add? I'll try to do some, but let's acknowledge the fact that we are blessed with so many brothers who are so able to lead us in worship. Appreciate so much Dan leading us in prayer and recognizing the difficult times in which we live and pleading with our God for help in those difficult times. And as we think about trying to be pure in heart, as we think about taking time to be holy, and as we think about the idea that only Jesus is worthy, Revelation chapter 5, to open that book or to open that scroll, we are reminded of all the reasons why we are gathered together today to worship our God as members of the Lord's church. You may recall a few weeks ago I preached a sermon on biblical authority, and I appreciate the good feedback that you had for me as we talked about the need to make sure that we only do things biblical ways, that we need to make sure that we have a command or an example to follow. We talked about what it means to have a necessary conclusion or inference. We talked about some of those things in brief form over the course of 30 minutes a couple of weeks ago. You may also recall that BV, that's before the virus, that we had a gospel meeting with Brother Tant earlier this year. And he talked about a lot of issues regarding institutionalism and what it means to be liberal versus conservative and how those issues have blossomed over the last 70 years to create some issues for churches of Christ. And so you may have also recalled... recall that I had promised that I was going to be doing a sermon called Churches of Christ, Are They All the Same? In light of talking about biblical authority. And that's what I want us to talk about for a few moments together this morning. Appreciate so much the many visitors that we have. And it could be that you are visiting from the community. It could be that you're new to the community. It could be that you're here at the bequest of a friend's invitation. And it may be that something you hear today may strike you as being different, or I never thought about that before. And we are here this morning not because I as an individual have all the answers, but rather that the Bible has all the answers for the difficult situations that sometimes come up and sometimes separate us as brethren or as friends or as religious associates. I want to start with some points of confusion or some points of interest as we talk today about the differences in one church to another. Now, this is increasingly the case here in this part of the country that I was counting a couple of days ago, and there are somewhere between 30 and 50 churches of Christ just in Rutherford County. 
and that's just based on what you can count on an online directory or a, a Yelp uh, website. There are lots of churches of Christ, and chances are, if you're like me, you passed by one or two or three or four or five other churches of Christ to get here today. That doesn't mean that all those other churches of Christ are wrong. That's not the point that I'm making. Please don't misunderstand me. We'll talk about that as we develop our study today. But sometimes you'll have in a community a third of the size of Rutherford County, you'll have four or five or six churches. And sometimes people will scratch their heads and say, why is that the case? Why is that so often the case? So someone would ask, is one church of Christ better than another church of Christ? Or some might say, or is it just a matter of preference or a matter of opinion? Well, in order to address that, because we are here today answering the question, are churches of Christ the same? Are they all the same? And is anyone as good as another? And by saying as good, I'm saying as biblical as another, as doing what is right as another. Let's identify that this morning. I want to get back to basics, though, and I want to establish three very important points. And I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, where we're going to read from in about 60 seconds. But I want us to make a series of three observations just at the outset of our study. Number one is we understand that when it comes to the church, Jesus Christ was the builder, he was the designer, and he was the purchaser of the church which belonged to him. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, we find as the New Testament church was really ramping up and getting going and having success in conversions, that it was Jesus' blood which was used to purchase that church. Secondly, and equally important, we need to acknowledge that throughout the Bible, here in Ephesians chapter 4 and in other places, that the Holy Spirit stresses the singular nature of the church. Look if you would at Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another love, endeavoring to keep the unity. So there's the first key word as we think about our study this morning, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, faith, baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. How many gods are there? There's one. How many faiths are there? One. How many bodies are there? One. You get the idea that Paul is trying to stress something here about the unity, which is why he uses that word in verse 3, about the faith that you and I subscribe to. We know from other places in Scripture that when we read about the body in Colossians chapter 1, for example, that the body is the same thing as the church and the church is the same thing as the body. So when there's only one body, there's only how many churches? There's only one. And what would we call it? We sometimes talk about this when we come together on occasions like this, especially to those who may not be familiar with the church of Christ. We say, well, what are we going to call ourselves? Well, our shepherds did not sit down and have a debate and flip a coin as to what we would call ourselves. But we said we'll call ourselves the Church of Christ because that makes the most sense. Because it's the church that belongs to him. 
And let me suggest thirdly that we need to appreciate that early on in the first century that our early brothers and sisters, those first century Christians, were warned about apostasy. Look, if you would, at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And there's a lot of passages that we could turn to to talk about this. But apostasy is really a word that just talks about a departure from the truth. And this is important for every preacher. This is certainly important for, for every shepherd. This is, I would submit, important for every person who is a member of the Lord's church to understand what apostasy is and why it is such a dangerous thing. He says, I charge you. And whenever Paul says, I charge you, he's saying, I'm going to say something serious. Not that the other things aren't serious, but he's like, I'm going I'm to double up on the seriousness here in this part of the text. He says, I want you to know, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. I want you to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. And the reason that you have to preach the truth and not allow anyone to stop you in that process is because the time's going to come when apostasy will take over. Now, that's not what verse 3 actually says, but that's what verse 3 is saying, is it not? The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, Timothy, as a preacher, as a Christian, you be watchful in all things, endure the afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So those three points are elementary to who we are as Christians and as members of the Lord's church, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus designed it. The Holy Spirit stresses that there's only one. And we, whether we are in the first century or the 21st century, are warned about the dangers associated with uh, moving away from the truth. So we've got to defend the truth and stand for the truth. Which brings us to the concept of identifying the Lord's church. Now, there's a sermon just in, in that, or a sermon or two. But these are things that we should be familiar with. But I think it's important to make sure that we are reminded of these things. Number one is that to be admitted to the church, to be added to the church, is something that God does. Acts chapter 2 is kind of the hub of the Bible, as someone once said. And it talks about Peter's sermon. And it talks about the idea of what it requires in order to be saved. And Peter responds and he says, Repent every one of you and be baptized for the forgiveness or for the remission of your sins. And they that accepted were baptized that day. They were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And they were added to the church by God. Now, and so the question, going back to the previous slide, would be, what church did God add them to? Well, I'm guessing he added them to his church, the one that Jesus built and the one that Jesus designed. And the purpose of the church is to be based on New Testament practice as well. So being part of the New Testament church is outlined in Acts chapter 2. The purpose of the church is outlined throughout the entire New Testament. But I love 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 where it says that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. That tells me that the church is not to be associated with all of the trappings of social 
uh, needs of men and women. We sometimes will say when we're asking people to come forward, if you want to make a change in your life, can we help you in some sort of a spiritual way? Because we are concerned about spiritual things. That's not that we are unconcerned about physical things. It's just that we are primarily concerned about the spiritual things because that's what the church is about. The purpose of the church is based on New Testament practice. And thirdly, the worship of the church is based on New Testament practice. We learned this when we were quite young. We need to be reminded of this from time to time that when it comes to the Lord's Supper frequency, when it comes to whether we sing or we play an instrument of music, when it comes to when we come together to take up a collection, all of those are kind of Christianity 101 concepts that we understand that the worship of the church is based on New Testament practice. Now, let me identify the Lord's church or make another point about that. Uh, here before we move on any further, and that is there's more to the church of Christ than being called the church of Christ. I could put up a sign outside of my door and it would say, Leland R. Ping, MD. That doesn't make me a medical doctor. In fact, if you know me well enough, I'd be a horrible medical doctor. I faint at the sight of blood. So I could call myself a doctor and put up that shingle, could I not? Now, there's probably some law against it, but I could still do so for a short period of time. Just because someone puts up on a building that is a church building, a, a meeting place for the church, and says we are a church of Christ, doesn't make them the church of Christ. And again, that comes back to identifying the Lord's church to be the church of Christ as described in the New Testament pages, a church has to look like, act like, and function like New Testament church. And so just because a place calls itself the Church of Christ does not mean that it is the Church of Christ. If you're like me, you like traveling. I like traveling. I like going different places around the country. I haven't traveled too much around the world. I've been to uh, Canada and I've been to Mexico. That's the extent of my travel on a foreign basis. But I've been to a lot of places in the United States, and many of you travel as well. And these days we get to travel with you virtually because we see where you are, and we see, oh, you're seeing this place now. Oh, now we know where you are. And it's neat because you meet people all over the country, especially if you're traveling over a Sunday or a Wednesday. But if you're like me, and I will confess it's happened to me, you walk into a church building come Sunday morning or Wednesday evening, and here you are a thousand miles away from home. And you scratch your head and you say, something doesn't seem right here. But you give it the benefit of the doubt and you continue on until the preacher starts talking and you're like, something really doesn't sound right. Sometimes things don't smell right. I remember as a little boy, my parents had done their due diligence as much as possible. But I remember sitting in Bible class, because we got there from Bible class. We tried to do what's, what's the right thing to do, B BV, <laughs> before virus. I thought, I smell chicken. Do you know how hard it is as a, as a nine-year-old to be sitting there in Bible class and you're smelling fried chicken? And then the Kool-Aid came around. And then the candy, and then the donuts. Mom? <laughs> Dad, I think something's a little bit off 
here. More about that in just a moment. Simply to call a place a church of Christ doesn't make it the church of Christ. Let's deal with some terms and definitions. Now, terms and definitions are not always the, the, the funnest thing to deal with. But it is common to hear churches of Christ, especially in our conversation with one another, and we'll use certain terms. We'll use terms like, is the church conservative or not? And if it's not conservative, what's the opposite of conservative? It would be the idea of being liberal. And so we understand what that means, generally speaking, in political terms, but does it have uh, a similarity in spiritual terms or in church governance terms? Sometimes we use the word institutional. Where in the world did that term come from? And going back to uh, Brother Tant's meeting back in the earlier part of this year, back in January, he talked about institutionalism a lot from the perspective of having lived through those battles of the 1950s and 60s. Or the opposite of institutional would be non-institutional. Sometimes we would say, is, is that church institutional or is that church non-institutional? Is that church liberal or is that church conservative? Now, I will submit to you, and I, I, I agree with you, these terms are not biblical terms. But then again, we use a lot of terms. We use a lot of terms uh, in Scripture that, uh, or outside of Scripture, to describe or to qualify particular things. And let me suggest, secondly, that how a church is identified as conservative, liberal, institutional, or non-institutional uh, may depend on the identifier. Beauty isn't in the eyes of the beholder, sometimes we say. Sometimes the identification of the church is going to be in the eyes of the beholder as well. So I want to talk about those four terms in the time that we have left today. And I'm trying to squeeze all this into one sermon uh, and then maybe we can develop it over the course of the coming months if that's something that someone would like to do in private study. We were happy to talk more about it with you. Let me start, though, with conservative and liberal. There are two typical, and I put typical in quotes, issues that show up that helps a person identify whether a church is conservative or liberal. How we, let's face it, as members of the Northfield Boulevard Church, how our shepherds see it, and how I, I would see it. I'm not suggesting that I have all the answers. I'm not suggesting that I'm always right. But based on biblical scriptures that we're going to look at today, there is a right and there is a wrong. And there is something that we should be doing and something that we should not be doing. These are two typical issues that show up. These are not the only issues, but they're two typical big-ticket items. One of those is the presence or the advent of any sort of kitchen or a fellowship hall. Now, I would here uh, submit to you that we have a fellowship hall, so to speak. We have a fellowship room. We're, we're, we're doing it right now. We are fellowshipping in providing communion to one another, literally communion in the service that we partook of, but also communing with one another in the study of God's word. So this is our spiritual feast. This is what we've come together for. None of us are going to, well, I hope, none of us will walk away from services today and say, I was sure disappointed because I just feel like I'm, I'm starving to death, physically speaking. So you can take care of that on your own time. Is the work of the church to do this, or is the church authorized to do this? It goes back to our authority sermon from a few weeks ago. Well, let me share with you just uh, two passages, and we could spend uh, 15 minutes on this point. We'll spend all of about a minute on the point. 
two passages. One is in Romans chapter 14, and I've always liked Romans 14 for a couple of reasons. It's a difficult text in some ways, but yet it's a simplistic text in many ways. It's difficult because a lot of times people will use Romans 14 as the, the hole in which to stuff all disagreements and say you cannot be judgmental about any disagreement whatsoever. But it's also simplistic in the way that it is written. And if you look at verse 17, it says, go back to verse 16, Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there's a place where, and I, I get it that we are leaving out some of the context here for the sake of time, where Paul says the kingdom of God, the church, the spiritual stuff in which you and I are engaged is to be of a spiritual nature, righteousness, holiness, peace, joy. Paul wrote, furthermore, to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verse 20, and he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So we do eat when we come together, literally. We eat the bread and we drink the cup. We do that every Sunday because that's what we've been commanded to do. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. And then he says, you are, to paraphrase, you are really taking the Lord's Supper. You're making it into this festival for which it was never intended to be. You're turning it into a common meal. And he says in verse 22, Do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? Do you not despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So is this the idea of having a kitchen or a fellowship hall where we come together and we have a meal after a service like that? Is that the work of the church? Based on scriptures here and other places, if you are of the conservative viewpoint, we would say, no, that's not what we are to be engaged in. And that's why as a nine-year-old boy, I was a little bit surprised when I could smell chicken frying in the middle of Bible class because they were going to have their fellowship meal later in the day. Furthermore, conservative and liberal groups are typically... Uh, determined based on their views of recreation and entertainment. And so the question is, is it okay for a church to host or sponsor with its funds, campouts, movie nights, social activities, um, food, fun, and frolic, the three Fs that we'll make reference to in a little bit. Or another way of asking that, going back to our sermon three weeks ago, is it authorized? Do we as a church have authorization to be engaged in those activities on the church's dime when, we're supposed to be, when we are supposed to be coming together for spiritual purposes? Well, I would submit that 1 Timothy 3 verse 15 that we quoted a few moments ago, that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And I would also suggest in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, that where it says, concerning the collection, and then it uses a phrase, what is the phrase? For the saints. That we have to be very cautious about the way that we spend the Lord's money, because it is designed for the saints. And so we would approach that and say, you know what, that just doesn't seem right to me. And so we would say, no, this is not something that we are to be associated with. 
And so going back to traveling, when we travel, and sometimes it's very difficult, is it not? But when we travel, we have to do our due diligence to try to find a place that is going to be worshiping and doing the things that are of a biblical or a conservative nature. And again, we, we probably have all been there. At least I, don't, I hope I'm not the only person that's ever walked into a place and gone, something's not exactly right. I see some head noddings up and down that you understand what I'm talking about. The other thing is when you move into a community, especially here in the south of the Mid-South, you can't just walk into a place and say, well, that's the one that's closest to us, and therefore that's the place that we're going to go, because that may not be the best option as well. Let me spend just a few moments then talking about institutionalism. And Brother Tant did a good job of talking about it in the historical sense. I want to talk about it a little more in the practical side of things. As you may or may not be aware, and those of you that are a little bit younger, including people, well, my age and younger, uh, we did not live in the 50s. For that matter, we didn't live in the 60s, and most did not live very much in the 70s. So we are far removed from when institutionalism really got going and really got its steam behind it. It is mostly a result of issues prevalent in the 1940s and 50s post-World War II when many churches began to consider different ways or alternative ways of doing the Lord's work by using some sort of an institution some have argued that the church's work could be improved or be enhanced. And there are a lot of examples that we could talk about. I want to just talk about three of them. And if you remember back to January, BV, uh, you remember that Brother Tant talked about a number of these things and some of the criticisms that came his way personally, as well as other brothers uh, and sisters in Christ. One of those issues is regarding orphans, and widows, taking care of them. Now, we are good Bible students. We know that there is something somewhere in the New Testament that talks about taking care of orphans and taking care of widows. We read that the church has not only a right, but a responsibility to care for those who are needy, particularly widows and orphans. 1 Timothy chapter 5 spends about 15 verses at great length talking about qualities of the woman that you are going to provide for and what she can and cannot be, including age, uh, previous uh, situations, current situations. And James chapter 1 verse 27 says that pure and undefiled religion before God is to keep oneself unspotted from the world and to visit those who are without husbands, that is those who are widows, and those who have no longer parents who are orphans. But we have to acknowledge that this is the work of the church. It is the work of the church to be engaged in taking care of those who are needy, not another institution or other organization. So when we say institutional or institutionalism, that's where the word is coming from. Because what many churches do what many churches of Christ do around the world and around the United States for sure is each church will write a check for a certain amount. So we'll write a check for $1,000 and we're going to send it to We Love Orphans Incorporated. And you have 
30 churches all sending a $1,000 check. So you have $30,000 into this one charity. And then that charity, that organization, or that institution takes care of the work in providing for the orphans. And we look at that from an outsider's perspective. Just step away from the Bible for, for a second. Step away from the fact that we are at a church service. And you can see where some would argue that makes sense. Except, what are we giving up? We're giving up control. We're giving up a knowledge of how that money is being spent. And we are violating James 1, 1 Timothy 5. And we go back to three weeks ago, we do things by direct command, by apostolic approved example, or by necessary inference. And so for thousands of years, the church existed in providing for orphans and widows without the advent of those organizations that man designed particularly 70 to 80 years ago. And we should still be able to do that as well. It is important to also know that there's a difference between a saint and the church. A saint can help organizations. Now, I would, I would say that a saint needs to be very cautious about participating in an organization that has religious overtones to it. There are certain stores that you and I may not go to, right, because of who they are affiliated with. Certain charities that we may say, you know what, I'll choose to, to donate my $25 to another charity, that is not involved or sponsored by a denomination. But 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 says, concerning the collection for the saints. That's a passage that I use virtually every time that someone calls the building and says, do you all help with uh, canned food at this time of year? Uh, do you all help with rent? Uh, I have a motel room and I don't have enough money for it. Does the church there pay for these things? And I will oftentimes uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and say, you know, if you want to come by, maybe I'll talk to you or David will talk to you, depending on who's here at the building at the time. But as the church, we don't have the authorization to spend our money just on anything that we want to do. Generally speaking, those conversations are relatively short. Every once in a while, those conversations get a little bit more lengthy. And usually it's one-sided. It's not me talking. It's them. And it's words that I can't repeat. Secondly, Educational opportunities or educational institutions. Many denominations have their own schools or they have their own programs. Whether it be an elementary school, whether it be a high school, we have that here in town, right? And or their own college or university affiliated with them. There are two issues with this. There is absolutely nothing wrong with secular education. And in fact, I don't know of any parent who is present this morning that says, I don't think it's important for my, for my child to be able to, to read and write and do arithmetic. We all agree that those are important things. We all want our children to succeed, whether that be in higher education or be getting a good job or getting good training to be able to do certain tasks. We all want that. But it is not, it is not, it is not the work of the church to educate in non-spiritual ways. That's not what our goal is. Did, did Paul ever sit down with those with whom he uh, was teaching and talk about algebra with them? Did he ever get into secular history that may be interesting? And as a history person, I believe it's important to know those things. 
But I'm not going to spend time here talking about those things with you all. We can do that on our own time. But we are here for spiritual purposes. It's not the work of the church to educate in non-spiritual ways. And the other thing that we need to acknowledge is that there's no authority for money going from the church to an organization that is educational in nature. Again, many churches of Christ take their checkbooks and they write sometimes large sums, but it doesn't matter if it's a dollar or a thousand dollars, and they will send that money to an educational organization. Where's the authorization for that in Scripture? I can't find any. Now, I'm not an expert on the Bible in the sense that I, I know every page by memory. But I've not read where that was the work of the church 2,000 years ago. And so it cannot be the work of the church in 2020. And then thirdly, when we think about institutionalism, the third area that it typically shows up is in missionary societies. Missionary work is without any doubt uh, proper. There might be other terms that we use, preaching work. Uh, in fact, this church is involved in preaching work, not just here in Rutherford County, but in places around the country and around the world, wherein checks are being written from Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ to certain preachers in various places around the country or around the world. Is that appropriate? Based on biblical pattern, it is. What ends up happening is that some churches of Christ use an outside organization or institution to take care of that work for them. So you have 30 churches, each writing a check for $1,000 and $30,000. My math is very good today. $30,000 all going to this outside organization. The outside organization then divvies up the funds. Well, again, we've lost control. We've lost oversight. How in the world local pastors are supposed to be able to oversee that work is beyond me when you give up that work to an outside organization. The fact is, is every example in the New Testament is an example of a church supporting a preacher financially and never churches supporting a group. You'll never find that in Scripture. But in Philippians chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you'll find where brethren in various churches or locations, whether it be at Philippi or Corinth, they were involved in this particular work. So what are the conclusions that we can come to? The conclusions is that just because a church calls itself a church of Christ doesn't mean it is a church of Christ. A church of Christ is in violation of authority principles is a church in error. I'm not the one to make cast the judgment, but I do read what scriptures say. And so if a church is wearing the name Church of Christ and is spending its money inappropriately or engaged in inappropriate activities, we have to say that's not something that I should be a part of, or at the very least, I should try to change those things. The fact of the matter is, is no church is perfect. And I'm not about to submit that we here at Northville, we're perfect. We got everything fixed. We, we, we don't ever sin. We don't ever mess up. No church is perfect in the sense that there's room for improvement. But when error is noted 
it needs to be corrected. Furthermore, I would argue, based on biblical principle, that a refusal to make appropriate changes means that a church will very well deserve the label of being liberal or institutional. So it's not a matter of being judgmental, it's just a matter of being observant and saying that church is spending its money inappropriately based on New Testament principle, therefore it's a liberal group or an institutional group. In fact, the objective for every church of Christ is the restoration. And that is to avoid a number of particular things. It's for us to do three things as we close out this morning. I want us to consider these three things as we close. Number one, we need to avoid unauthorized financial practices. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 or Romans chapter 14 and read those passages, memorize those passages, uh, star those passages. There are to be no funds spent on the three Fs, food, fun, fellowship. Now, you can put an asterisk next to fellowship because we do spend money on fellowship, but you understand what I mean. Food, fun, and frolic is more appropriate to that. But the idea of fellowship has been misused by individuals to say that this is the idea of fellowship, so we're going to have a basketball game in our facility. There's one church that removed all of its pews. True story. Brought in piles of dirt so that they could have a rodeo. And some would say... Come on, we would never do that. Open the door a little. And 20 years later, who knows what you're involved in. No funds spent on secular education. No funds spent for outside organization. No funds spent for nonsense. The only exception may be in the idea, you make the argument. Someone could say, wait a minute now. What about preaching to someone who's not a Christian? Well, you get my point. We need to avoid contemporary worship. While change isn't inherently wrong and sometimes is good or helpful, the church needs to ask why. Why are we changing the way that we are doing things? Are we doing it to appeal to changing attitudes? Are we doing it to attract people void of the gospel? Are we doing it to adapt to changing trends that are transpiring? You know, there are uh, churches of Christ, including those that are doing very well on paper in terms of their financial outlook and their membership. Thousands of people, churches of Christ in the United States that are now either considering the instrumental music, that offer two services, or have just completely gone over and said, well, let's do instrumental music because that's what everybody's doing anyway. And they still call themselves the Church of Christ. No wonder why people are confused when they sometimes travel. Do you, are you aware that there are churches of Christ that now have women who are serving in the pulpit, who are preaching or serving as shepherds? This contemporary worship might very well appeal to more people. We might draw more people in, but what are we drawing them to is the question. We need to avoid non-biblical purposes. The church's purpose is not to be a social safety net for the community. And that's what most people think the church is. They think it's here that when you fall on bad times financially, you come to the church and the church will help you out. Even though I've never gone to that church. It doesn't really make sense, but that's where people associate the church. It is not a place for food pantries, blood drives, 
drug rehab, we can help you with some of those things in terms of if you are addicted to drugs, we'll pray with you. We'll try to steer you in the right direction. But you get the point that we are here for spiritual purposes. We are to remember the threefold purpose of the church as described in the New Testament. We are to be busy being bees. B-E-E. We are to be about the work of benevolence, taking care of the church's needy, including widows, orphans, those who lost their homes, uh, those who've lost jobs, those who've lost income. It is appropriate for the church, and this church has done that, to help those who are needy. We are to be involved in the work of edification, building up the body for the spiritual growth and maturity. And we are to be involved in the work of evangelism, preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ. When you boil it down, that's what we do as the church. Again, being busy like a bee, benevolence, edification, and evangelism. So going back to where we began and now where we close, and you have been such a great group of listeners this morning, guys. I know we've gone a little bit longer than normal. Are they all the same? Ultimately, no. Ultimately, one church of Christ is not going to be the same as another. And ultimately, we can't be men and women who control what liberal or institutional churches do. It's not our uh, lot to go in and start cleaning up all the messes. We would be doing that a lot. We would forget what our purpose is here. Sometimes the best thing to do is to lead by example, which leads us to what we can do. And that is the three R's. Number one, we can remain faithful to the New Testament pattern. Set the example here. And be known as a church that is going to, you know, we're going to err on the side of caution and not participate in that. Familiar with a church that 50 years ago, and it's not in this state, was a thriving large church doing what God had asked them to do and from all intents and purposes and from all observations was faithful and not involved in any of the things that are going on fast forward 40 years later and I, this is not meant to be comical nor is it really meant to be judgmental it's meant just to be observational I remember a couple years ago looking on their website. And not hidden, but on the main page was one of their elders walking around in a panda suit for one of their events. Something's not right there. That's not appropriate. And we should not get so immune to changes such that we say, well, that's not that big of a deal. It is now a church that spends its money inappropriately and is, if not fully institutional, is on the verge of going institutional. And I've got friends who used to be members there 20, 30, and 40 years ago. We must remain faithful to the New Testament pattern. Secondly, We must recognize the wrong of failing to do so. And thirdly, we must reinforce the truth by our choices of fellowship and practice. When in doubt, be a little more cautious. When in doubt, stick with what the scriptures say. When in doubt, ask one of our shepherds. 
what would you do with this situation? And we're blessed to have three men who are strong in trying to stick with the things that the scriptures have commanded. We can only do what God has asked us to do, and that's what we choose to do today. And that's what we're trying to do here at Northfield Boulevard. And that may be offensive to some, but then again, my job, our job as Christians is to preach the truth, no matter what that truth may be, whether it be popular or not. Thank you so much for your kind attention this morning. I realize that the concept of this sermon is a little bit different than maybe a more traditional sermon, but I thought it was necessary for a number of reasons. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of these things uh, from time to time. And I appreciate so much your kind attention. If you're here and you are not a Christian, you're, maybe you're brand new to the concept of the church, brand new to the concept of studying the Bible. We're happy to sit down with you and to study with you some more, to answer questions that you may have. You're not going to offend us by asking questions. Why'd you do that? Why didn't you do that? We'd be glad to study with you. If you're at the point where you're ready to be baptized, to have your sins washed away, it requires you to believe in Jesus. It requires you to repent of your sins. It requires you to confess that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you're willing to do those things, we'll baptize you for the remission of your sins this very day. And if as a child of God you're not living correctly, maybe you've gotten involved in some sort of institutional issue, or maybe you've gotten a little bit uh, off base with some of your beliefs, and you need to make those changes. If it's private, do it privately. If it's public, do it publicly. And if we can study with you further, we'd be happy to do so. If there's anything that we can do to be of assistance to you, let us know. While together we stand and while we sing.